11 of What's Your Jam? Conversations about what makes us happy over a cup of tea and a jam scone. My guest today is the very wonderful Marianne Elliott, who is, oh God, what an inspiring human. Um, uh, the, the chat we had this morning was very intense in that uh, the, the things that she's done in her life in terms of um, human rights lawyering and lawyering, like that's a word, Jen, uh, being a human rights lawyer and activist and advocate in uh, Afghanistan, Gaza and uh, East Timor. Um, mean that we talk about some pretty pretty dark stuff so I just want to warn you about that um just you know in passing again we're not getting super into detail but you know there's been some crazy things that she's uh been witness to and talk to talk to people about that is today's show um we're past halfway with this episode so that's pretty exciting um let's just get straight into it I hope you enjoy this chat with Marianne Elliott yeah have fun Welcome. Uh, uh, are you enjoying your tea from Tea Leaf Tea? I'm enjoying my tea very much. It smells amazing. It's good, eh? Good. Mm-hmm. I'm, I think I've. I think that I have somehow actually turned myself into a tea addict just by virtue of having them all in my house and in front of me. And I'm just like, oh, I'm going to drink that one now. Oh, oh, so many teas. Tea is lovely, and it goes very well with scones. <laughs> yes, winning. <laughs> so, Marianne Elliott, you are. Um, you are the is it director manager of Action Station. I'm co-director. Co-director of Action a Station. Co-directorship. Basically, I don't really know what the word director means, but the point is the co part is important. We've yeah. got um, a collaborative leadership model. Right. That I share with Laura O'Connell Rapera. Laura O'Connell Rapera. Wonderful. Mm. And your other job, of course, is owning La Boca Loca and Boquita. Yes. Which is very different jobs. Yes. Very <laughs> different jobs. Um, that yeah, and the the like La Boca Loca and Boquita is has very little to do with my background and yeah. a lot to do with Lucas and so And Lucas is your partner? Well he's my business partner. He's your business partner. And right. was for nearly a decade my romantic partner right. is not anymore, but we're right. really good friends and oh, great. run the business together. Oh, that's mm. wonderful. Uh and your background of course is um if I'm remembering right, uh human rights lawyer? Is yes. that the main thing? That's yeah. Yes. Well, I studied law mm-hmm. and started as a lawyer in a law firm and went pretty quickly out of sort of practicing law into advocacy. Mm-hmm. So my first advocacy job was in the Gaza Strip. Wow. A long time ago now. That was your first advocacy job? Yes, I went straight to the Gaza Strip. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It was one of those things that um, I had finished university. I, I studied law at Waikato, <coughs> which was... Um, I was in the very first class. Oh wow! A brand new law school. Gosh. That was set up by um, Margaret Wilson, uh-huh. who went on to be the Speaker of the House um, and the Attorney General in Helen Clark's government. And it was set up intentionally to provide kind of an alternative approach to law in New Zealand. So it was founded as a bicultural law school. Oh wow! And it was founded in principles of the treaty uh-huh. and. For me, as somebody coming out of straight out of high school into law school, coming mm-hmm. from a rural farming family in the mm-hmm. South Waikato, it completely opened my eyes yeah. to the history of our country and um, the colonial process and how the law had been used as a tool mm-hmm. of the colon- <coughs> you know of the colonial process and 
basically turned me turned my kind of path around and turned me into an activist and a human rights advocate um, initially obviously with a lot of interest in the rights of indigenous people mm-hmm. and that has continued but also um, really interested in international human rights law so I worked for a few years in a big law firm mm-hmm. paid off my student loan which well wasn't very big because Not those was days. the early 1990s <laughs> um, so yeah I was the also the very first year of um, student loans oh, wow! Um, and they weren't that big back then but yeah. uh, so I paid off my student loan and then and then went back to um, a guy called Paul Hunt who mm-hmm. used to be I think he still is an adjunct um, professor at the University of Waikato School of Law mm-hmm. um, he's an international human rights expert and he'd been the supervisor of my thesis and I basically said to him okay I've sort of done my time in the corporate law world I want to be doing something else yeah (laughs) paid off my loan um where do I go and what do I do Mm -hmm. and he said oh that's interesting you should say that because I just got an email in my inbox three days ago from a friend of mine who's a human rights Palestinian human rights lawyer in the Gaza Strip and he's looking for an international lawyer to go and work with him you should apply and I applied and um, got the job mm-hmm. and they were like okay so can you please be in Gaza in two weeks and so it was all wow. very fast oh, from when I had the thought that I wanted that I was ready for a change to when mm. I was in the job mm. um, and yeah it was a bit of a whirlwind and suddenly you were yeah. in the Gaza Strip yeah and that was the beginning really of my career as mm. you know those two years at I worked at a law firm which is now called Mint Allison Rudd Watts and um I learned a lot, and I'm very grateful to yes. what I learned there. I learned uh, the importance of um, accountability and transparency mm-hmm. in your work, and um, I, I think just sort of the accountability to people who are paying the bills, mm-hmm. which is a really good lesson to learn really early yeah. on. Yeah, get that early, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and the importance of doing your job well. Yes. Um, so, I, you know, it was a good grounding, but, it, mm-hmm. you know, I feel like my career, in a sense, yeah. The path that I wanted to be on started mm. in Gaza. Yeah. So what was what was working in Gaza like? What, how long were you there for? I was there for two years. Right. Um, and my job was uh, the job that I was hired into was like the international legal advisor to the Palestinian Center for Human Rights, which is a local Palestinian human rights organization run by a lawyer called Raji Surani, mm-hmm. who I'm still in touch with many years later, mm-hmm. and who continues to do the work that he's been doing now for 30 years, which mm. is amazing. Um, and so my job initially was this centre has um, people who are called field workers mm-hmm. and they're travelling all around the Gaza Strip <coughs> every day. Um, mm-hmm. I guess doing work similar to the work that um, journalists are doing. They're right. tracking what's happening. They're mm-hmm. um, finding stories of uh, what was happening in the occupation at that time and not only in the occupation so certainly a big part of the work was kind of documenting and reporting on what the Israeli um, occupying um, army were doing in the mm-hmm. Gaza Strip but also what the Palestinian National Authority was doing because there were quite a few human rights violations happening on that side Both as ways, well yeah. and that made the work of the Palestinian Centre for Human Rights very difficult mm-hmm. because they were obviously um, not welcome by the IDF, the Israeli Defence Force, didn't want them around. Mm -hmm. But they also were seen sometimes as being traitors by the Palestinian National Authority because as well as reporting, Mm. for example, when an Israeli soldier had shot 
a child. Um, mm-hmm. They would also report when the Palestinian National Authority had tortured somebody, um, you know, under yeah. investigation. So it was it was like sort of being the the people that nobody really, yeah. you know, <laughs> was very fond of. And I had huge, huge, huge deep respect for my colleagues who did mm-hmm. that work. So they would go out and gather the the evidence, they'd interview people, they'd take photographs, they'd attend autopsies. I mean, it was really hard work that they yeah. did. And they would bring all of that back to the office and my job would be to work with them, to put it together and say, how does this relate to international law, international right. humanitarian law? Like, is this just an awful thing that's happened or is it a breach of international humanitarian law? Is it a breach of the Geneva Conventions? Mm. And... Um, so that was initially my job, was really doing the legal analysis of mm. the evidence as it was collected, and then reporting through the formal reporting mechanisms um, mm-hmm. under the Geneva Conventions. Who, did, who does that report to? Does that report to the, to the, the UN? The UN, mm-hmm. right, yeah. And uh, there is, there's a committee, a standing committee that's responsible for that. But it also became clear to me really quickly that, that those mechanisms, the formal mechanisms of international humanitarian law, Mm-hmm. Um, weren't the only actors who could influence what was happening in the Gaza Strip and mm-hmm. that, in fact, there was enormous amounts of political influence that was right. possible. Mm-hmm. And this was very early in my sort of career of said, how do you make change in the world? So it was, mm-hmm. you know, this is probably totally obvious to everybody else. But so I, um, I started getting involved in another side of the work at mm-hmm. the centre, which was taking the information that was coming back from the field workers and converting it into press releases um, oh, right. and trying to actually get coverage in the international English language media mm-hmm. of what our um, team were documenting. Yeah. So, so my nobody job, knows about it. No one else can get on board. Yeah. And, you know, I think, so I first went to Gaza in 1999. It was mm-hmm. the very sort of closing months of the, the Madrid peace process. Um and we were sort of, what I was seeing was the frustration and failures of that process that would sow the seeds of what became the second intifada, the Al-Aqsa intifada. Mm-hmm. And we could see it, it was happening right in front of us, the sort of mm-hmm. the continuation of the closures that were locking people in to the Gaza Strip. Um, there was just a whole range of things that were creating the conditions in the Gaza Strip for what my boss Raji at the time just called like a tinderbox waiting Mm. to explode Mm. and just trying to get word out about that. So that was my first job, really. Um, So it was pretty intense and um, I learned a lot about myself very quickly Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, learned, well, didn't really learn how to deal actually with the trauma and suffering and pain and ugliness that I was seeing every day I would say in my two years in the Gaza Strip I just took it all on board and my coping mechanisms were like binge drinking mm-hmm. like most of the aid, other aid and humanitarian workers mm-hmm. or dance parties because the great thing about the Gaza Strip is that it's actually um, unlike other places that I went on to work, mm. like Afghanistan, um, you know, there's a there's a youth culture, a Palestinian mm. youth culture that was pretty open at that mm. time anyway, and that so you those had of a us place who were international yeah. um, workers there, you know, could engage in, in mm. some of that and be welcomed into and part of that. Mm. Yeah, so that was that was Gaza, and it um, 
It's a place that my heart is still with, and it's not a place that has been treated well by the world still to this day. It's quite, yeah, it's tough. And it's hard because in my career I've kind of spent, you know, as I did in Gaza, two years in Gaza, Mm -hmm. three years on and off in East Timor, two years in Afghanistan, you... You come and you go and you learn a lot of lessons and you contribute what you can, but you move on and, and your friends, mm-hmm. the friends who you make there, the colleagues who you work with, they're still there. They're still mm-hmm. doing that same mm-hmm. work and that can feel pretty, I know that feels hard sometimes to be the person who just kind of flits in and flits out. Um, yeah. yeah. Is, is, and is, did you did you do that sort of flitting in and flitting out because that was just the nature of the contracts you had or because you moved on to other things that were that you went, ah, oh, that's something that I need to help with? That's a good question. Um, I think I left Gaza because I was broken. I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. I didn't I didn't have good coping mechanisms. Mm-hmm. I didn't have good ways of processing mm. what was happening to me. And you know when you go back and look back on your life and you sort of construct it into a nice, tidy story? Mm-hmm. At the time, it's not that tidy and you don't really know what you're doing and you don't really know why you're making decisions you're making. Mm. When I went back and looked at the sort of end of my time in Gaza, there was an incident where um, I got into a physical fight with an Israeli soldier. Like, mm-hmm. I actually punched an Israeli soldier, which is a very dangerous and stupid thing to do. That is incredible. Yeah. And I um, was because I probably because I was a white foreign woman, um, got out of that situation without being arrested or. Um, you know, getting myself into very, very deep trouble mm-hmm. certainly would not have been the case if I'd been a Palestinian adolescent boy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I got back to my apartment and I called a friend of mine who has been a leader of, um, had been a you know a youth leader in the Intifada and the first Intifada and had mm-hmm. lost three of his brothers, all killed mm-hmm. by Israeli defence, you know, force. Um, and I called him and I was like, I just completely lost it. I just did this thing. It was really stupid and really dangerous. And I've only been here two years and none of my family members have been killed. Like, what am I doing wrong? Mm-hmm. Like, you, you know, you hold it together. And he was great. He was, you know, he was very empathetic and he didn't make me feel stupid. <laughs> but he did basically say at some point, you probably should leave because yeah. you're really not that helpful to us if you're going to go around <laughs> punching Israeli soldiers. <laughs> it's yeah. like... Not really helpful, Marianne. Like, yeah, yeah, you yeah. probably need to go. I, yeah, you're in my heart, and I want to hug you, but please leave. Yeah. So, you know, and I really needed to hear that, yeah. and I, I did need to leave, and I needed to um, learn some things mm-hmm. before I would be able to go back into that kind of environment and be more useful for a longer period of time. How old were you at this point? I went there when I was twenty four, maybe twenty five. Yeah, no wonder mm. that was a like. Oh. Mm. He's like sweet summer child going, yeah. to, going to Gaza and having this experience. Yeah. And you know, and you expect a lot of yourself because your Palestinian colleagues are 24, 25 and they've been, yeah. but you know, of course they've been doing that their whole life. They've got a different context for it. And uh, it doesn't make it easy for them. It's unbelievably yeah. hard, but they are, um, yeah, they've, they've learned lessons. Mm. And the other thing that I, I also realize in retrospect is that mm. when you are, um, out of your own context you really do have to work quite hard to make sure you've got the right support systems in place mm-hmm. and you don't want those support systems to be putting more burden on the people who you're supposed to be there working in solidarity with yeah uh, so it's a it's sort of about building 
solid support systems to mm. take care of yourself and take responsibility for the shit that comes up for you mm. without asking your Palestinian or Timorese or Afghan friends to mm. do that work for you. Yeah, it's like that, there's that there's um, holding space, I think, diagram, which is like the mm. concentric circles. So like, you know, your circle is here and inside that circle are the people you're helping and you need to look outside that circle Mm-hmm. for the people to support you yeah and, and those circles will overlap in different areas but you've got to go you've got to look outwards not, not so when you feel like you're it. perhaps becoming like the problem that your palestinian friends have to take care of <laughs> you're like maybe i should get out of here yeah um so that was that was probably the first time i moved on and then um the work in east timor was a bit different that came through a contract mm-hmm. and that contract was done when mm-hmm. it was done um and then I spent some time based in New Zealand, not really going anywhere, which was great, working Mm -hmm. for the New Zealand Human Rights Commission, Mm -hmm. which was fantastic. It was very timely to kind of come home and go, you know what, Marianne? There's a lot of work to do here. Mm. Um, It's all very well to look out at the world, but you go, hang on, what's going on in New Zealand that we could be fixing? Yeah, and that I'm perhaps more deeply implicated in, Mm. you know, that my... Mm. my privilege and my background and my place mm. in this world in New Zealand um, is you know, sort of more directly implicated yeah. in a lot of the work to be done here. So that was good for me. And I, I, st- I worked for the New Zealand Human Rights Commission for about five years. Mm-hmm. And then I just got itchy and wanted to be back. Um, and there's definitely some like slightly pathological personal drive towards conflict mm-hmm. that I find really magnetic mm-hmm. um because the next place i went to work was afghanistan so mm. and that was you know you know what you're getting into there yeah think, that's very you know. that's a very clear like what 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 were the years that you were there uh i let me see i went 26 20, yeah so i went at the very end of 25 uh 2005 right so, so the very end of 2005 definitely in a high high activity time for yeah Afghanistan then. yeah and i was there for all of 2006 and all of 2007 mm. and i got back to wellington at the beginning of 2008 mm-hmm. um and in that case my reason for leaving was um was different it was i just came to have really really deep questions about what we were doing there and by we mm. i mean like the international community right. um because even though i started in afghanistan working for a an Afghan um, organization mm-hmm. um, when that contract ran out mm-hmm. I got a job with the UN right and so then you're really part of the system mm-hmm. and it's a system that was doing I thought very mixed mm-hmm. doing work with very mixed results right. and um, this is maybe too technical so stop me if you're like no it's boring marianne but basically (laughs) the um united nations assistance mission to afghanistan Mm -hmm. um is a political mission so Mm -hmm. in the un there's all these different agencies Mm -hmm. so helen clark has been the head of the united nations development program Mm -hmm. um and there's unicef which most people will know it's the agency for children and Mm -hmm. there's un women used to be called unifem the agency for for mm-hmm. women there's the um united nations high commissioner for refugees which is okay. another organization and, yeah. and then there's the united nations high commissioner for human rights right which is the sort of body within the un responsible for monitoring protecting and promoting human rights mm-hmm. and previously and then there's something called dpko which is the department of peacekeeping operations right and when you see like the blue helmets 
the UN Blue Helmet guys, you know, mm. and women, yeah. that's the peacekeeping operations. So when yeah. you say like a UN mission has gone into Haiti or a UN mission in, you know, Somalia or whatever, that's mm -hmm. the peacekeeping operations. And DPKO, um, those missions go into places under political agreements. Mm -hmm. So, for example, when the United Nations Assistance Mission to Afghanistan went into Afghanistan, it was under a political agreement between the United Nations um, Security Council and the government of Afghanistan. Right. So th that mission is in that country with the permission of that government. Mm -hmm. So there's a political relationship at the highest level. Mm -hmm. um, in Afghanistan, the human rights functions... So the functions of the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights were embedded into that political mission, mm -hmm. that mission that was there with the permission of the Afghan government. Mm -hmm. There's lots of good reasons for doing that, mm -hmm. because you want to integrate human rights throughout your assistance mission. You want to ensure that all the political advice that's being given and political support to the government mm -hmm. respects human rights. You want to ensure that human rights issues are integrated through your humanitarian you know, assistance, um, which is all the kind of relief mm -hmm. and recovery stuff. So there's a really good reason to integrate human rights into that mission. Mm -hmm. The flip side, like the trade-off for that, yeah. is that the head of the human rights part of that mission sat underneath the head of the political part of that mission in right. terms of the sort of hierarchical structure. Mm -hmm. So my boss, who was the head of human rights in that mission, reported to somebody who was the head of the whole political part of the mission and what I found in my experience was that, that from time to time despite my boss being a person of great integrity and you know very very deep human rights principle from time to time I felt that compromised our ability to do mm. our work as human rights professionals who are answerable to a set of international human rights laws mm. that in my view take precedence over political agreements. Um, yeah. So that but was, if but someone's driving towards a political outcome versus a human rights outcome, exactly. like they shouldn't, but they potentially clash. And they do sometimes. For yeah. example, there was uh, somebody in um, Hamid Karzai's government mm -hmm. um, known as General Dostum mm -hmm. who had been one of the leaders of the Northern Alliance mm -hmm. of Afghan kind of tribal leaders. Mm -hmm. Some people call them warlords. That's a massively loaded term obviously yeah. <laughs> uh, who had resisted uh, were, were, they were part of kind of um, the fight against they were part of the Mujahideen sort of the fight against um, the Soviets uh, okay. in yeah. Afghanistan the Soviets were pushed out mm -hmm. they got rid of they also and the Taliban came in and these guys had also sort of fought back against the Taliban and mm -hmm. so they were allies of the international effort to oust the Taliban yeah and it was really important when you were putting together a cabinet mm -hmm. that you had representatives of the Northern Alliance in that cabinet, as mm -hmm. well as Hamid Karzai comes from the Pashtun kind of part of okay. Afghanistan, which is the southern and eastern. Mm -hmm. So this guy's in the cabinet. He's a cabinet minister. Mm -hmm. He's also allegedly responsible for massive war crimes. Right. You know, multiple killings. There are mass graves. There are stories of people being shoved in con into containers and left to die in those containers. And as a human rights... Yeah, uh, you, you want to take that's action my job. on that. My job is to go to people and say, tell us what has happened. Yeah. And when somebody tells you, here's what has happened, and it was done by that guy, 
who sits at the cabinet table with the Prime Minister, and that is why this country will never have peace and security until those people are held accountable. Mm. And then you come back into your office and you say to the head of the political mission, all right, you want to know what's going to create a sense of security for people in this country? I've just interviewed 500 people and asked them that question, and they say what will make them feel safe and secure in this country is not more American troops, it's getting that guy, you know, out of the cabinet and held accountable. And the answer is, there's no stable government in this country unless he sits on that cabinet. So you can see how those two impulses... Yeah. So in the end, I was like, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to interview people, have people come to me, tell me their stories Mm. in good faith that I'm using the information they're giving me to to influence somehow the future of their country Mm. or at least influence the relationship that the international community has with their country. And I don't feel that I can fulfill that in good faith. So um, at some point, for me, I I was doing the wrong job in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah. Um, So I came home. Yeah. There is a super complicated story. No, that's very reasonable to have come from <laughs> home. And it's, sort of, it's just, I'm just sort of like, I want to just be like, where is everybody else listening to this? I'm, I'm the only person listening <laughs> at the moment, but other people will listen later. I'm just like, I'm like, oh my God, it's just. Oh. And there was, you know, there was a lot of things. Like I was the sole, I, at that point mm. when I decided to leave, I was the, um, what's called the sort of, the head of a UN provincial office. So I'd been promoted, I guess, from being a human rights officer to being the head of the office. And that office had responsibility for humanitarian response and political engagement as well as human rights, Um, which I loved, actually. I loved that job. Mm -hmm. And I loved being as far as possible away from Kabul and all the politics of Kabul. And I was way, 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 way up in the mountains. And people in Kabul literally didn't give a shit what we were doing up there. So we could kind of... I could work with local palace, uh, local Afghan, mm. you know, community leaders yeah. to do a lot because it just yeah, kind of you could went get stuff under done. the radar. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody cared what was happening in Chakchiran. It was right. not a place of great, you know, political importance. Um, but it's important to those people. Totally. So, yeah. yeah. Um, but the flip side of that was in order for me, mm-hmm. one, just me, mm-hmm. to live in that town mm-hmm. required this huge um, compound with these massive walls and mm. you know armed policemen outside the front gate at all hours of the day and night just and protecting you just to protect me oh. yeah just to protect me and the resources that were being spent the money that was being spent just mm. in my mind if you just add it up mm-hmm. the money that was spent the cost of providing security to one international staff member mm. um just felt like not good use of resources in a resource scarce environment yeah and i um went on a trip near the end of my time um which was a wonderful trip where i got to go out into some really remote districts in the province that i was working in like sort of you know multiple days drive and mm-hmm. you know four-wheel drives up mm-hmm. in the mountains and it was beautiful and we arrived at this little town and um my colleagues, my Afghan colleagues, had arranged for me to stay with this house um, household of foreigners because mm-hmm. they were like, oh, there's foreigners in this little town, so Marianne can stay with them, mm-hmm. which is very nice because normally I had to stay in the police offices and sleep, <laughs> sleep in the police, <laughs> sleep in the police offices because that's the only place they thought I was safe, which was mm-hmm. weird and uncomfortable. But um, because the police stations are 
targets of the Taliban. So yeah. it didn't feel like the safest yeah. place to sleep. <laughs> but anyway, so I arrived at this house and here were these people who were um, working as medical they were basically from a medical NGO, mm-hmm. a non-governmental organization, and they'd been running a hospital and training doctors in this remote part of Afghanistan mm-hmm. for years and years and years. Mm-hmm. And their lifestyle was exactly the same as the Afghan people who lived next to them. You mm-hmm. know, they didn't have a fridge. They never. Ge- I had a generator. Mm. This generator in my compound. No, in my compound there was a massive generator that uses diesel. Yeah. So that I could have hot water showers and a fridge to keep my food cold and mm-hmm. all the things that nobody else in that town had that stuff. I mean, yeah. not nobody, obviously. The governor did, and, yeah, yeah. but most people didn't. So I, I know I stayed with these people and they didn't have a fridge. They had a, like a sort of a, you know, when you dig in, what's it called? Cellar. Oh, yes. That's yes. what I'm trying to They had a cellar <laughs> where they put the, you know, they put the food to keep it cool. Yeah. They didn't have, they didn't have, um electricity they mm-hmm. just heated their water the way everybody in afghanistan did by lighting a doctors. fire yeah i mean at the hospital they probably had a generator would be yep. my guess but yep. at their house they lived mm-hmm. the same as the people mm-hmm. who they were in community with yeah. and i had this moment of thinking i feel like this is the right way to do it yeah. <laughs> you know and your security is provided by the fact that you're serving the community and so they will look after you and look out for you and if oh. they think that it's useful to have you there and that you're helping them then, then they'll do what they can it. to keep you safe. Yeah. So I also sort of got back after that trip and went, I'm just not comfortable in this big expensive compound with this, you know, mm. diesel burning generator. And yeah. it was also that, which which is not a, not to say there's never a time for that because there are certainly people mm-hmm. in compounds with generators doing great work. But yeah. for me, it just all kind of went. Yeah. Yeah. You went, this doesn't gel for me. Wasn't yeah. the right place for me to be at that time. Yeah. It was just, you know, we all have moments of awakening when we kind of see ourselves in our situation in a new light I think yeah just mm. that moment of oh right okay yeah. I think I'm done here yeah yeah and so mm. you came back to New Zealand after that yeah and have you done more traveling since then or have you mostly stayed in New Zealand since then I've done lots of traveling but I um and I've been back to Afghanistan which was great okay. I made some um uh radio stories for Radio New Zealand oh great a series of five little radio stories which I loved mm-hmm. loved doing that um because I, yeah, I loved it because I knew, because I had lived in Afghanistan, because I had mm-hmm. really dear friends um, who were active in, I guess, sort of subcultures and mm-hmm. often unheard from communities. Mm-hmm. I was able to, you know, tell some stories that yeah. you wouldn't normally get access to. So that yeah. was really fun. Right. Um, but yeah, I've been, I haven't gone to live anywhere else. I've yeah. Been so you've, in you've, been working in, you've been working in Wellington since then. Mm-hmm. And when did you start Action Station? Uh, Action Station was sort of formally launched in its mm-hmm. current form in the lead up to the last election. Right. So I guess it's coming up to three years. Mm. I think it was launched in June oh, yeah. before the last election. June or July. Maybe July. That was a crazy idea. Yeah. We were like, let's launch before the election. <laughs> and, and try and make some change before then. <laughs> and do report cards on 15 issues that really matter to people. Yeah. Uh, that was a busy time. Yeah. So that was about three years ago. Mm. And, uh, and Action Station as a concept had been around. And um, there'd been some great people doing a lot of work mm-hmm. um, to kind of refine the idea mm-hmm. and um, a lot of research about what was working yeah. in other places. Right. To 
I guess what was working to um, reinvigorate um, political action and democratic engagement mm-hmm. um, outside of political parties. Right. Not because political parties don't matter, they do, but um, we most democracies also need ways for people to engage mm. that's outside of those parties. Yeah, um, or it's outside of election time as well. Like, yeah, 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 throughout the full electoral cycle. So so that idea had been around and people had done a lot of work on it and they mm-hmm. were just looking for somebody who was willing to take it up and try and make it happen. Mm-hmm. And it was you. And it was me. Yeah. Yeah, and we were sort of at a point then where um, Lucas was ready to leave Weta Digital, where mm-hmm. he'd been working full time for the first few years of mm-hmm. La Boca Loca, and I'd been working in the restaurant mm-hmm. at that point, and so we decided we would flip that, and he right. would leave Weta, work in the restaurant, and I would start working full time for Action Station. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a tough year because we lost his income from Weta, and I mostly didn't pay myself the first year of Action Station. Yeah. Um, and Lucas wasn't able to pay himself yet from La Boca Loca. Right. So we kind of had one day, one year of like, oh, no income. <laughs> we will eat leftovers from the restaurant. <laughs> yeah, well, that was true. We were never going to starve. Yeah, that's good. We were fine. We weren't going to starve. We had food and we had wine even, so we can't really complain about that. And our <laughs> landlords were our very good friends, so they oh, weren't going to kick us out either. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, tough with very... If people need you in the community, <laughs> they will find a way to protect you. Yeah. So, well, you know, it was more... Um, I think just more the sort of stress of are we going to get out of this to the next phase where it's not mm-hmm. that hard. But, um, yeah, and it's been it's been a real – Action Station has surprised me, I think, in terms of the scale of appetite. And, and not because I thought that people didn't care. I always knew that people really mm. – people care about yeah. this country and they care about the people in this country and they want things. Mm. People want things to be fair and they want them to be – you know, they want the country to be – flourishing for everybody and mm-hmm. I actually firmly am of the view and the evidence supports this that most people in this country want that mm. um, and most people are would like ways to take action to help mm. contribute to that and this is where you know we're creating a set of opportunities mm. there's lots of other opportunities out there to do that as well but a set of opportunities and the thing that we're really we feel really strongly about is collective action mm-hmm. because there's lots of things that people can do in their own life mm-hmm. in um, you know individual ways. Mm-hmm. But when you look through history, the big changes, the moments when a society has kind of swung more in the direction of yeah. um, a certain set of values, has always been connected and collective action yeah and you can't do things on your own in that way can you no there's lots of things you can do by yourself but that kind of social shift yeah happens when we act collectively mm. so um so a lot of our long-term kind of strategy is around gathering up people mm. through a whole series of smaller campaigns yeah gathering up people to be able to then say okay now now look at what you all have in common so mm-hmm. you were really excited about this issue and got involved and, you know, mm-hmm. took action. And you were really excited about this issue. And here are these common values that lie underneath that. And when we start connecting all of this up, and then if we came together as mm-hmm. a bigger movement um, to put our weight mm-hmm. behind calling, really calling up our politicians 
to take more leadership around those values, what yeah. would that look like? So that's interesting because that's that's the long term plan, and we're kind of at the beginning of that piece where we're right. saying what happens when we connect this stuff up. Yeah. Um, so we'll see how that goes. It's interesting because I'm noticing that uh, it's it's because the, the, it's like you're grabbing people on the little things and going mm. like, hey, you may change in this little way, like mm-hmm. with you going to a small place and going like, I'm under the radar, mm. I'm making a difference, I feel the change. Whereas people don't engage because they see the big picture and they see like government and they go, well, they're doing stuff and I can't affect that. I'm just going to look after what I do. Yeah. But, but making that connection between yes, but if you all in your own places put them together, then you are making a big change. So it's like it's like taking you from the little the little I can't remember what the place name you said. Oh, but the, yeah, yeah, there. <laughs> I don't think I can say the word yet. I have to practice. But taking it from there and realizing that, like, okay, these little changes I'm making and the difference I am making here. Yeah, I can influence what happens in a different way. I mean, Afghanistan is a extreme ex, an extreme case. Yeah. So that it's a bigger picture, but be by being able to support that small space. If enough of those small spaces are supported, you build up enough to support the big space. So yeah, it's and like connecting those dots. And the other thing that the other connection between my experience in Afghanistan and what we're doing with Action Station is every single time mm-hmm. I saw effective social change happening, mm-hmm. and particularly when it involved getting a shift in powerful decision makers, mm-hmm. it happened through collective mm-hmm. action. So. Sometimes the story that gets told is about one kind of heroic person. Yeah. Um, in fact, quite often the story that gets told is about one heroic person mm-hmm. because that's how our narratives tend to work, like yeah. we like a hero. Yeah. But when you're actually there and watching what's happening, that mm-hmm. one heroic person is just a symbolic kind of stand-in yeah. for the work that's been done by, you know, lots and lots and lots of people working together. Mm-hmm. So uh, that was – and I'm – like I'm still probably grappling with how do you give people stories that they can resonate with that mm-hmm. are usually about an individual. Mm-hmm. So even in our campaigns, you know, there was one that happened recently that's a great example of a small issue that, you know, mm-hmm. we think could potentially have bigger implication. It was a, a young uh, girl, a 12-year-old girl mm-hmm. who has Crohn's disease. Oh, yeah. I started, think I signed this petition. Yeah. yeah. So she started a petition that was um, seeking a piece of legislation that mm-hmm. they have um, that has been passed in the states, which it's one of those things you sort of would like to think we don't need legislation for. That this is like just sort of decent human yeah. behaviour, but that would require um, workplaces to make their work their staff bathrooms available to um, customers mm-hmm. if those customers say that they need them for a medical reason. Right. Um, so what works really well in the media for a story is that one 12 year old girl, she's the hero of the story, yeah. right? She's the one driving it going, yeah. Hey, this I looks this great. Thing. There's this young person who has this personal experience who's taking mm-hmm. a stand. You can get a photo of her with the MP. You can, you know, that's how storytelling works. Yeah. 
But the reality of how the petition started was that she was at a camp mm-hmm. and it wasn't just her. It was her and all of her camp mates who have that shared experience. Yeah. And it was some teachers and support people who were listening and saying, okay, what are the issues that you would like to see changed mm-hmm. and giving them information and ideas about what had happened in other places. And it was that group of young people coming together and they went to parliament together. So mm-hmm. the reality is that change happens. And, it, and then it's all the people who signed her petition and sent mm-hmm. her messages and got in touch with their MPs. And so mm-hmm. change happens through collective action. Yeah. Um, and in my own work, I often find I'm sort of holding in, in balance the fact that if I can give um, you know, somebody in the media a sort of an heroic person, whether it's a 12-year-old girl mm. or a 92-year-old grandmother, that will make a great story. Yeah. But it also tends to continue to mislead us about how change happens. Because yeah. that's not how change happens. It happens when we all do our little bit, whether it's, you know, yeah. make one call to an MP or put our name on her petition or, you know, volunteer at the camp yeah. that she gets the training at. So I think that's kind of the biggest story that I'm really keen to tell. Yeah. This is so interesting because it's linking to several of the interviews I've had where we've talked about um, how telling a specific story that is genuine and has details that are particular to that person mm-hmm. is actually a lot more relatable to an audience, if mm-hmm. we're thinking about it in terms of mm-hmm. stories, um, so much more relatable to an audience uh, than like going, did you know that some people have this thing sometimes? Because when it's sort of when it's hypothetical and it's sort of general, you can't you can't feel as connected to the story because you don't there's no detail for you to go ah that's a real thing. If it's like this is a thing that happens to people, then it's it's too it's 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 not specific enough, and it's easier to relate to someone who has a real story because you can go I understand that that's not my exact experience, but I can tell that it is yours and I can see the relation to mine. Yeah, it's. Yeah, and I think, and I think that's, thing. you know, yeah, hundred percent. That's how empathy works. Yeah, you know? yeah. Empathy doesn't work between an individual and an abstract hypothetical group. No. It happens between an individual and an individual. Yeah, and it's at its most powerful when those individual stories have details that we mm-hmm. can actually imagine ourselves feeling, yeah. tasting, and experiencing. Mm. Um, and be okay, and be comfortable with knowing that it's not exactly the same as mine, but I know it is yours. Versus like this hypothetical when you go, well, that's not my exact experience, so I don't believe it. Yeah. yeah. So it is an interesting tension, isn't it? It's yeah. like I think in campaigning, we know we. I don't, you know, all campaigners I've ever talked to know that personal stories mm. about real people mm-hmm. are what will flip the switch for most people from mm-hmm. I don't understand why this matters to oh I see why this matters. Mm. Like that's really clear so how do we do that and tell the story of collective action um and not so one is about how humans experience these issues and the other one is about how change happens and Mm. how change happens through lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of individuals Mm. yeah contributing to it so that's so Mm. wonderful (laughs) (laughs) um well yeah, I think this episode is going to be called Making Change. <laughs> um, thank you so much. Is there anything that you're uh, – we're going to, I've, got, I've got space for, for links to things, um, mm-hmm. so we'll link to your book. Um, is there anything else that you're working on at the moment that's, that's pertinent that people should, should hear about? Yes. Great. <laughs> so one thing that we're working on at Action Station right now is this People's Commission of Inquiry into Public Broadcasting and Media in New Zealand. Right. Which um, is 
a response to the fact that whenever we go out to the Action Station membership and say, what are the issues that really that you want to campaign on? Mm-hmm. What are the things that you want to create change around this year? Funding for public broadcasting is mm. always a big one. Right. Um, and the easy thing to do, in a sense, would have been for us to go, okay, well, everybody loves Radio New Zealand. Let's run a campaign to increase funding for Radio New Zealand. They mm-hmm. haven't had a funding increase in a long time. And in fact, there is a member-led petition mm-hmm. asking specifically for that on our site, and we support that. But that doesn't answer everything else. I mean, Radio New Zealand is incredibly important, but Radio New Zealand isn't creating um, TV dramas, and Radio mm-hmm. New Zealand isn't, um, you know, funding New Zealand comedy. Yeah, or New Zealand comedy. Uh, well, Radio New Zealand does investigative journalism, but you think about a piece like the one that um, the Herald just produced with... Oh, blimey. Okay, I shouldn't go to about to say a name because then I just realised that I'm not going to say the name properly. Anyway, <laughs> um, but yeah, the, there's lots of people doing great work that's mm-hmm. in the public interest, whether it's children's television programming, mm. Māori language programming, comedy, mm. drama, science, natural yeah. history. You know, these, yeah. are, these are all things that matter to New Zealand and it's in the public interest that we have this. Mm. So we realised if we just run a campaign to increase Radio New Zealand's funding, that's good. You're missing out a whole lot But there's a lot, lot of things, things that aren't in that. So we um, decided to embark on a process of trying to find out more about the complexity of how mm-hmm. funding for public interest broadcasting currently works, mm-hmm. what's working, what's not working, mm-hmm. who is it working for, who's missing out, yeah. and how could it be changed. Mm-hmm. And we're doing that through a panel of inquiry process, right. um, which was perhaps like, yeah, we set ourselves up, of course, because once you put together a panel, there will always be people who think that you've got the right or the wrong people on your panel. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. the role of the panel isn't to come up with, uh, isn't to, you know, have all the answers um it's to listen and so we're taking them around the country mm-hmm. we kicked off yesterday in wellington great um at meow and it was about 40 50 people came along so mm-hmm. that was great and we'll be in dunedin mm-hmm. this coming sunday and then we're going also to nelson christchurch tauranga and auckland mm-hmm. and people can find out more about that mm-hmm. on the website great um, which is makeourmediabetter.org.nz great um yeah, we got some feedback on that as well. People are like, that makes it seem like our media is bad. And yeah, I was like, like, I'm like, okay, yeah, true. But, <laughs> but, put, but it turns out that, like, you know, help us work out what to campaign on for public broadcasting isn't a very <laughs> isn't good very, URL. It's a terrible URL. <laughs> so, but yeah, it's a very clear message to people working in um, the production yeah. of media in New Zealand. This mm. is not about suggesting that you're doing a bad job it's just going it's about making sure that if yeah. we are going to campaign on how the government should fund public broadcasting mm-hmm. let's make sure we're campaigning for the right things yeah um, that people will get behind yeah 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 so that's that i would love so you can attend any of the workshops mm-hmm. you can put in a written submission mm-hmm. um you can register to speak at one of the workshops as an expert presenter. Oh, okay. So the panellists are there to listen. They're mm-hmm. not there to talk. They're mm-hmm. there to listen. And each of these, there's a series of speaking slots. Mm-hmm. So, And I haven't yet seen anybody in our registered speaking spots speaking on behalf of um, comedy oh. and production of uh, comedy content for the New Zealand that's good to know. public interest. So we might need that somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a big project and it would be great to have more voices, more diversity, mm. um, make sure that, you know, we're not just falling into the trap of 
thinking about the things that are most obvious. Yes. Yeah. Great. So make our media better. We'll put it, there'll be a link. It'll be great. <laughs> um, but thank you so much for coming and talking to me. That was wonderful. Thank you for and having me. You're welcome. episode 11 uh, what a wonderful human she is so lovely i first met her at uh, wellington woman tedx tedx wellington women that's how you say it um and she did a speech about courage so uh if you look that up if you look her up i'll uh you can find her in in, in the ted talk sort of universe um it's a really lovely chat uh hope you enjoyed the episode hope monday is looking good for you i hope you dress for the weather have a lovely um, rest of the week. Ten more episodes to go. I hope you're having a good fringe as well. Uh, visit whatsyourjam.nz if you want to um, uh, see other, listen to other episodes. I've got a whole bunch of other ones. And also, um, if you want to support the show, I do have a Patreon set up. It's kind of a free slash koha show. So if you would like, if you've been enjoying the show and you want to throw a little bit of cash my way, then great. <laughs> It feels like begging, but it's just letting you know if you didn't that if you are enjoying it, you can contribute to it. Um, I'm also open to uh, the advertising spots that I have been uh, offering. So um, uh, if you select a particular tier, you get to be the official sponsor of an episode and I'll talk about your show or your project or whatever it is you want me to talk about, assuming it's not uh, horrible or harmful. That's enough rambling from me. Um, I've got two more interviews that I'm going to do today, which is exciting. I'm going to get ahead of things before I crack into Deep Space Nine over the weekend. Um, have a great week. Ciao. What's Your Jam is recorded in Wellington and is part of the New Zealand Fringe Festival 2017. Music by Robbie Ellis. Casual interference and support from Molly the Cat. Tea provided by Tea Leaf Tea on Manor Street. Jam expertly crafted by Bachmans. This show is hosted and produced by me, Jennifer O'Sullivan, and you can find useful links, more episodes, and suggest future guests by visiting whatsyourjam.nz. Thanks for listening.